Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America collection as my source material. In this episode, I will be continuing my look at the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, and we're actually coming to the end of it. There's only going to be three more episodes, so um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised how quickly I've, I've been going through these works. Um, so in my previous episodes, I looked at three of his novels, The Suppression of the Slave Trade, The Souls of Black Folk, and Dusk of Dawn. And actually, those last two are more collections of essays. Um, the Suppression of the Slave Trade is a, was his PhD dissertation. And then we, we had a bunch of essays collected in this volume to look at. And the, the first set of essays I looked at in the previous episode basically covered his, some of his youthful writing, like a commencement address he gave at, um, I believe it was uh, Harvard, and some of the, the some of the things he wrote when he was an early teacher, and then uh, coming up to 1919. So in this collection of, of writings, we, there's basically three things in the, the next hundred pages of, of essays. And there are like 10 essays in this section, and, and they cover a little bit. Uh, some of them are essays he wrote in a collection called Darkwater, which isn't fully reconstructed in this collection, but we have a fair representation of what he wrote in Darkwater. Those are essays about race, uh, about Africa, and we really they really let us get into Du Bois's views and visions of, of Africa. So some of them deal with that. Some of them deal with his response to and his feelings about the Marcus Garvey movement, which I'll talk more about later on and then we have his response to kind of the proliferation of black art in the harlem renaissance and you know where he thought the place of black art should be in the overall struggle of african americans so those are really going to be the three topics i'll talk about there may be a few other essays that that deal with other topics but by and large it's going to be those three things we're going to look at today so the first essay is called The Souls of White Folk. And this is actually a chapter from Darkwater. Darkwater was written in, in 1920. Now, in a way, The Souls of White Folk is an early example of, of what I think we can call whiteness studies. And now whiteness studies, if you're not familiar with it, is a field of, of racial ac academic study that that applies racial theory to to white people right so for a lot for much of much of early writing about race it, it was always the other right non-whites were were racialized and so that's where kind of racial studies focused on so it's like the african-american experience or something or the asian-american experience now white what whiteness studies does is say that that whiteness is also historically constructed it isn't a natural category any more than blackness or the mongoloid race or whatever are 
natural biological categories, and therefore it should also be studied as a historically constructed phenomenon uh, that changes over time. And, you know, like a famous example of this field of study is How the Irish Became White, a book by a man, I think his name was Noel Inaktiev. And that, that was showing how when the Irish first came to the United States, they weren't considered white, and but over time, they they got incorporated into the white into the conception of the white race in the United States. This is an example of that. So, and pretty much from the first page, you realize that quote. The discovery of personal whiteness among the world's people is a very modern thing, a 19th and 20th century matter indeed. The ancient world would have laughed at such a distinction. The Middle Ages regarded skin color with mild curiosity. And even up into the 18th century, we were hammering our national uh, man mannequins into one great universal man with fine frenzy, which ignored color and race even more than birth. Today, we have changed all of that, and the world suddenly emotion, has an emotional conversation, has discovered that it is white, and by that token, wonderful. The assumption that all of the hues of God's whiteness alone are inherently and obviously better than brownness or tan leads to curious acts. Even the sweet souls of the dominant world, as they dis discourse with me on weather, wheel, and woe, are continually playing above the actual words in obligato of tune and tone. Okay, so that that's how he sets it up. And then he goes actually into the mentality of, of white people as he sees it. And so, yes, the book... The Souls of White Folk is a play on his earlier work, The Souls of Black Folk. So in the sense that The Souls of Black Folk was an effort to get at the interior uh, spiritual striving of, of black people, The Souls of White Folk is a modest attempt to try to do that for, for white people. And what it comes down to for Du Bois is, this, is white supremacy and how that affects the rest of the world. So he almost defines here almost a religion of whiteness, this kind of arrogance, the how's it called the arrogance of the english amok the whoop of the hoodlum who vicariously leads your mob next it appears dampening generous enthusiasm in what was once count, counted glorious to free the slave is discovered to be tolerable only insofar as it freed his master do we sense somnant writhings in black africa or angry groans in india or triumphant bonsais in japan to your tenso israel these nations are not white everything considered the title to the universe claimed by white folks is faulty. It ought to look to be plausible. How easy then by emphasis and omission to make children believe that every great soul in the world ever saw was a white man's soul, that every great thought that the world ever knew was a white man's thought, and that every great deed in the world ever did was a white man's deed. End quote. And so this is, so first it's historically constructed. It's a modern phenomenon. And second, it's projected throughout all of history then, this presumption that greatness comes out of, out of whiteness. And the result of this, of course, is then empire, 19th and early 20th century empire. Uh, the mission to make the world safe for democracy, which was being seen largely as kind of a European or Anglo-American mission to save the world. And kind of the, the civilization mission and all these other aspects of, of empire are the consequences of it. So I think this is an interesting essay because it is not just talking about whiteness as a historically constructive phenomenon, but it then connects that ideology of whiteness to the actual historical events going on around him, particularly the rise and codification of, of European and, and empires across the world. And this has really denied other potential narratives of whiteness that he just 
think it gets sort of lost in this presumption of greatness. And I, for him, what really gets lost then is, is democracy. And he doesn't quite use the term multiculturalism, but you get the sense that he has this idea of America contributing to the world, the potential for a multicultural democracy. But that's what gets lost in, in whiteness. So that, that essay, The Souls of White Folk, is really useful just as a kind of introduction to the concept of whiteness as a historically constructed phenomenon. The, the next essay we get is also, I think, in Darkwater. Yeah, yeah, it's also in Darkwater. So it's also from 1920. It's called The Hands of Ethiopia. And this is a really good introduction to Afrocentrism and the ideas of Afrocentrism. And if, if you're not familiar with Afrocentrism, the heart of the Afrocentric idea is that Africa was home to ancient and significant and creative civilizations. And usually they'll point to, Af to Egypt for this. So part of Afrocentrism is really claiming Egypt as an essential part of Africa, not part of a kind of Western civilization. And then beyond that, you could argue, and some have, that these civilizations influenced other cultures. And there's radical Afrocentrists who go farther than Du Bois does in saying, you know, like Africans founded the Olmec civilization in the New World or, or the Greek philosophers, right? And there's a moderate position here just accepting that Greek intellectuals, for instance, were, much, were very much engaged with Egypt and influenced by Egyptian thought. And there's a much in Greek philosophy that have its roots in Africa. So that's part of the Afrocentric idea. Another part of it, and that's much more modern, it's coming after the diaspora, is this idea of the need for a solidarity between Africa and the black diaspora, whether it's in the political struggle for independence or civil rights in America or in some kind of grander historical mission. And Du Bois is doing a little bit of all of that in this essay, The Hands of Ethiopia. Primarily, it's about European imperialism in Africa and what the black diaspora's relationship to that should be. Um, but he also establishes very early in this essay his beliefs that Africa is home to ancient, enduring, important, and historically significant civilizations. Quote, always Africa is giving us something new or some metempsychosis of a world-old thing. On its black bosom arose one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of self-protecting civilizations, which grew so mightily that it still furnishes um, superlatives to thinking and speaking men. Out of its darker and more remote forest, fastness came, and if we credit many recent scientists, the first welding of iron, and we know that agriculture and trade flourished there when Europe was a wilderness. Nearly every human empire that has arisen in the world, material and spiritual, has found some of its great crises on this continent of Africa, from Greece to Great Britain. As Momenend says, quote, it was through Africa that Christianity became the religion of the world. In Africa, the last floodgate of Germanic invasion spent itself without hearing of the last gasp of Byzantium. And it was through Africa that Islam came to play its role as conqueror and civilizer. So that's him introducing this, this kind of first pillar of Afrocentrism, the centrality of of ancient African civilizations in world history, right? And this is still something I think world historians struggle sometimes to incorporate into their narratives. And it's getting better, of course. And there's been some really wonderful textbooks that have incorporated the African experience into world history, but it's, it's still a, a struggle, partially because historians are a bit blinkered by illiterate societies. And um, although I think that's something that's improving. And then he gets into a little bit the experience of 
of slavery and how that creates this diaspora. But ultimately, the main focus of this essay is on what has happened to black Africa in the 19th century and how black people around the world should respond to, to empire in Africa. And he, ha he very much has a global perspective here. So he's associating what's happening in Africa, what's happening to other colonized people throughout the world, uh, both in terms of defining racial hierarchies and just the straight power and domination of, of empire. Now, one, con one th way he connects these two things is he does talk about how European power really rests on the back of Africa, whether through colonial exploitation, material resources, or through through slavery. So, or even he even kind of hints at how the missionary narrative kind of props up whiteness and white supremacy by painting Africa as backward or uncivilized, you know, in need of salvation from missionaries and commerce and, and capital. So that in a, in a kind of ideological way props up uh, the position of, of Europe. But largely, he's, he's interested in um, empire itself. And then what's, what's to be done about that? And what's the response? And what he start, begins to envision here is what he calls a, an African world state or essentially a, a free black Africa that's, that's unified. So, I mean, that's another aspect, I think, of Afrocentrism I didn't mention before. And that is this idea of seeing Africa as, as one unit as one, as it kind of having a singular historical destiny and a singular history, not one that's divided by different regions and languages and religions or whatever, right? And in reality, African history is very complex and has many different tracks and, and a lot of conflict and diversity and different historical missions. So there's a bit of a projection on Africa of, of this kind of hope of of what he calls a new African world straight. But, but it's an interesting example and it's what this establishes when we get into Marcus Garvey is that he shared some values with Marcus Garvey he had very different ideas on strategy and he, he had a lot of criticisms of Garvey but on this issue they seem to be of one mind in the idea that African Americans should be part of the anti-imperial struggle in Africa and that that their own destiny is tied in intimate ways to the liberation of the African continent from empire. Well, here's what he writes. Quote, against this idea, let us set up a conception of a new African world state, a black Africa applying to these people the splendid pronouncements which would have been so broadly and perhaps carelessly given the world, recognizing in Africa the declaration of the American Federation of Labor that no people must be forced under sovereignty under which it does not wish to live. Recognizing in President Wilson's message to the Russians the principle of undictated development of all people. Recognizing the resolution of the recent conference of the Aboriginal Protection Society of England that any reconstruction of Africa which might result from this war, the interests of the native inhabitants and also their wishes, insofar as wishes can be clearly ascertained, should be recognized as among the principal factors upon which the decision of their destiny should be based. In other words, recognizing that for the first time in history of the modern world that black men are human. End quote. So that's that's important because he's he's saying here that these are not just my ideas. These are ideas that are shared. They're in the 14 points. They're in other international organizations to the degree they talk about Africa. This is what they're saying. So there's kind of some consensus that 
that these empires in Africa should be dismantled, but on what grounds? And his model here is start with the former German colonies, give them their independence, and from there build up the foundations of, of a free African modern state. And so that's kind of the foundations of a political independence. And then there's the questions of, of integrating this free Africa with the diaspora, with economic development, modernization. And, and he basically insists pretty strongly that, that, as we might expect from his other works, that the foundation for development must be education. And so that's, that's part of it. But he also thinks it's important for black people to accumulate their own capital and their own investment and not depend heavily on Europeans for that. Um, and, and that kind of sums up this really important essay, uh, The Hands of Ethiopia. It, I think it's one of his more important ones defining his vision of, of Afrocentrism. I think that's why it's included in this, this anthology. So it actually, it pairs nicely with The Souls of White Folk because both are about empire, but one is more about the ideology that led to white supremacy and the domination of Africa. And then The Hands of Ethiopia is more about a, a possible path out of empire and to kind of a restoration of black Africa's place in world history. The ending is kind of nice too. quote, 20 centuries before Christ, a great cloud swept overseas and settled in Africa, darkening and well night blotting out the culture of the land of Africa, of Egypt. For half a thousand years, it rested there until a black woman, Queen Nefertiti, the most venerated figure in Egyptian history, rose to the throne of the pharaohs and redeemed the world and her people. Twenty centuries after Christ, black, black Africa, prostrated, raped, shamed, lies at the feet of the conquering Philistines of Europe. Beyond that awful sea, a black woman is weeping and waiting with their sons at her breast. What shall be end of it? What world old and fearful things? War, wealth, murder, and luxury. Or shall it be a new thing, a new peace and a new democracy of all races, a great humanity of equal men? All right, so that's that's uh, the hands of Ethiopia. The next essay is also from Dark Water, so we actually have three important essays from Dark Water. So maybe we don't have to read all of Dark Water. We we kind of have the broad picture of what he's trying to do in that book. And really, Dark Water is a response to the Wilsonian moment. It's a response to World War II and Black people's participation in World War. Or sorry, World War One and black people's participation in the war. And then the Wilsonian charge that this should be a war, you know, to make the world safe for democracy and to lead to national self-determination for all people. And then Du Bois is then challenging Wilson and the European powers to make good on this promise of national self-determination, not just for some Eastern European nations, but for all the colonized people of the world. Um, the next essay is very fascinating. It's called The Damnation of Women. Uh, again in Darkwater in 1920. And this is about the black black womanhood, essentially, what slavery and empire has done to black womanhood, and then again, the way out of this. So it has a very similar structure to the hands of Ethiopia, but it's focusing on the experience of, of women. And like some of his other essays that we talked about, like, um, what was it? I think the Talented Tenth, where he starts by saying, you know, here are some examples of educated black people to prove this talented tenth exists. He does that also with with African American uh, historical figures like Harriet Tubman. Um, who else does he mention? Uh, Sojourner Truth. 
um, and a few others. And he goes back to even some Egyptians. Now, he does think, though, that that black womanhood has been devastated by by slavery and racism and white supremacy and empire. Quote, all womanhood is hampered today because the world on which it's emerging is a world that ties the worship of both virgins and mothers and in the end despises motherhood and despoils virgins. The future world must have a life, work, and economic independence. She must have knowledge. She must have the right of womanhood at her own discretion. The present mincing horror at free womanhood must pass if we're ever to rid of the bestiality of free manhood. Not by guarding the weak and weakness do we gain strength, but by making weakness free and strong. End quote. So he's got actually a feminist argument here that, you know, we cannot really get out of our predicament by enslaving women or kind of insisting on kind of traditional womanhood. It must come out of liberating women, right? And that must be the foundation of, of a mature uh, feminism. Going on, he says, the world must choose the free woman or the white white wraith of the prostitute. Today, it wavers between the prostitute and the nun. Civilization must show two things, the glory and beauty of creating life and the need and duty of power and intelligence. This and this only will make the perfect marriage of love and work. End quote. So I think you know, we can nitpick a little bit about this essay from time to time. And he does kind of fall back a little bit on idealizing particularly black women from time to time, especially historical figures. So he might be a bit contradictory there, but I think by and large, I think this essay does establish him as a credible feminist um, of the modern type that thinks we need to have women, women need to be liberated and free and creative and, and have this autonomy. And on that foundation can be a more mature womanhood than what we see today. So the, the criticism sometimes of feminism you get from like the alt right maybe, and some other uh, white supremacist conservatives out there is that kind of modern feminism creates the prostitute. And that's that Du Bois actually challenges this idea saying it's actually in a way, the modern world does create the prostitute, but the solution to that is more feminism. It's not, not kind of a retreat back to old, traditions because in those traditions you you do have of course like the code of Hammurabi defining womanhood largely in terms of almost like a form of prostitution in which women are controlled by their husbands or, or fathers or brothers depending on the the case now the essay is called, of course called the damnation of, of women so he's really interested in then what happened and as we might expect what happened was empire and slavery and that whole experience and that's the impact of slavery on the black family is, of course, pretty self-evident. It's been talked about a lot. I don't know if we've looked at any work specifically on that in in this podcast, you know. But certainly, to some degree, slavery in the United States was kind of an institutionalized form of rape, right? The family was literally broken. The black family was literally broken. The marriages were not legal. So that relationship between the father and the child was was broken. The relationship between mother and child was merely one of passing on the status of, of slavery, right? Because that was the legal definition of a slave. And this, the rape of enslaved women was common. And it, I don't even think it was like a legal, like a crime um, in the antebellum South to, to rape one's slaves and to impregnate them. So that's all in the backdrop of Du Bois's essay. Now, Du Bois, at one point, I don't know how seriously we should take this, but 
he says, like, I can look beyond the experience of slavery to a certain degree. I, I, I can forgive that. What I can't forgive is the crime against black womanhood. And from this, he goes on to, to talk about how important it is to have liberated black women in order as part of the broader struggle and part of you know independence for all black people is going to depend largely or at least in large part on the liberation of women he says quote i shall forgive the white south much in its final judgment day i shall forgive its slavery for slavery is the world old habit i shall forgive its fighting for a lost cause and for remembering that struggle with tender tears i shall forgive its so-called pride of race the passion of its hot blood and even its dear old laughable strutting and posing but one thing I shall never forgive, neither in this world nor in the world to come, its wanton and continued persisting insulting of black womanhood, which it sought and seeks to prostitute to its lust. I cannot forget that in such southern gentlemen, into whose hands smug northern hypocrites of today are seeking to place our woman's eternal destiny, men who insist on withholding from my mother and wife and daughter those signs and appellations of courtesy and respect, which elsewhere he withholds only from bawds and courtesans. End quote. So, uh, now... The well, what else to say here? Um, oh, he even talks about how, like, the beauty of black women has been perverted by racism, and I, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. He talked a little bit of this, I think, in the Souls of Black Folk, or maybe it was in Dusk of Dawn too, where he didn't quite understand why black women were seen by whites as ugly, and he thinks this must just be an extension of white supremacy because it kind of baffles him. Um, and he actually has a little bit of a dissertation here on the beauty of black women, but how racism has has kind of corrupted that and and created a distorted perception of beauty in the minds of both blacks and whites. Because, of course, remember, for Du Bois's point of view, all of this gets reflected back on black people. The white supremacy always gets reflected back. That's the whole point of the veil, right? In double consciousness is black people are always looking at themselves as themselves, but also as white people see them. So that that's shaping all these aspects, too. And I, I think it's an interesting to think about this and kind of the obsession we saw in Harlem Renaissance writings on the color line and and this tendency, especially among um, those writers, to talk about the preference for black men to marry lighter skinned or to date um, lighter skinned women. I'll just read it. You know, du Bois is so readable. Quote, other things being equal, all of us, black and white, would prefer to be beautiful in face and form and suitably clothed, but most of us are not so. And one of the mightiest revolts of the century is against the devilish decree that no woman is a woman who is not, by present standards, a beautiful woman. This decree of black women of America have, in large measure, escaped from the first. Not being expected to be merely ornamental, they have girded themselves for work instead of adorning their bodies only for play. Their sturdier minds have concluded that if women be clean, healthy, and educated, she is a pleasing as God wills and far more useful that than most of her sisters. If in addition to this, she is pink and white and straight haired and some of the fellow men prefer this, well, well and good. But if she is black and brown and crowned in curled mists, and this to us is the most beautiful thing on earth, this is surely the flimmiest excuse for spiritual incarceration or banishment. So that kind of sums up his argument, essentially saying a couple of things. One is the, the importance of feminism to um, the struggle for freedom for, for black people in America. I guess that's what it comes down to. But also the corruption of womanhood by slavery and empire and, and white supremacy. So those are the three essays from Darkwater, uh, The Souls of White Folk, The Hands of Ethiopia, and The Damnation of Women. 
Um, next we have a couple essays and I'll just kind of, the three essays actually, and I'll just look at them sort of together. I think they're all published in The Crisis, uh, all written by Du Bois. One was in 1920, another in 1922, and the last in 1924. So they're, they're over a four year period of time. And the first is called Marcus Garvey, the second is called The Black Star Line, and the third is called A Lunatic or a Traitor. And let's just let's just take these together as essentially one essay. And these are all dealing with Marcus Garvey and his movement, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. All right. So if you don't know, Marcus Garvey, born in 1885 in Jamaica, uh, came to America. He was heavily influenced by Booker T. Washington, especially this idea of kind of racial uplift. And he focuses like. Booker T. Washington on, on the commercial development of, of black people in America. But he has very much a pan-African identity because coming from Jamaica, he, he, he saw relationships between how black people are treated in the U.S. and Jamaica. And eventually he became very interested in Africa and the end of empire in Africa. And, and just like Du Bois, after World War I, he believed one of the consequences of black participation in World War I on the side of the Allies should be achievement of, of independence for, for black Africa. And he eventually formed his movement, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Now, that movement, although mostly existing in the United States, most of its branches were in American cities, it also had a few branches across the world, even a handful in Africa, although they were short-lived and, and suppressed. So it, it is a global movement, although it's mostly um, in the United States. And its main goal was to push for black independence, but also to promote commerce between African-Americans and Africans. And there's a lot of focus on Liberia and Sierra Leone as, as free black states, especially Liberia. In the way Du Bois thought the German colonies could be a foundation, Marcus Garvey focused on Liberia as, of course, that was founded by former slaves in the colonization movement. And then a lot of what he engaged in was promoting trade. So he actually established this kind of steamship company called the Black Star Lines, which I think moved some people back and forth. It, it helpfully was for migration, but mostly it was for trade. So it was trying to encourage kind of African-Americans to buy African goods and to trade with Africans. And so this Black Star Line was an effort to do that. Now, that's all well and good, and I think Du Bois is not unsympathetic with some of these goals. But here's what he, the questions he asks. Quote, uh, one, is it an honest, sincere movement? Two, are its industrial and commercial projects business-like and effective? Three, are its general objects plausible and capable of being carried out? And it's, this is where he really has his doubts. And he, he starts to question how honest Du Bois is. He, he sees ultimately not Du Bois, Marcus Garvey. He sees Marcus Garvey and his movement as fundamentally corrupt, driven by, by profit rather than a true goal of, of black independence. Now, I, I don't think he's talking here about the rank and file members, but he's talking about the, the leadership, in particular Garvey himself, who he sees essentially skimming off the top and taking and grandizing himself and motivated by kind of demagoguery and not a true commitment to the movement. 
And the way he says it is, to sum up, Garvey is a sincere, hardworking idealist. He's also a stubborn, domineering leader of the mass. He has worthy industrial and commercial schemes, but is an inexperienced businessman. His dream of Negro industry, commerce, and ultimate freedom of Africa are feasible, but his methods are bombastic, wasteful, illogical, and ineffective, and almost illegal. If he learns by experience, attracts strong and capable friends and helpers instead of making needless enemies. If he gives up secrecy and suspicion and substitutes open and frank reports as to his income and expenses... And above all, if he's willing to be a co-worker, not a czar, he may in time succeed in at least starting some of his schemes towards accomplishment. But unless he does these things and does them quickly, he cannot escape failure. Now, this this essay, the first one at least, well, all three of these, but I was looking at the first one on Marcus Garvey himself, were written in the crisis. And you can imagine Du Bois being a little politic and not trying to offend uh, Garvey's rising and movement. It's, it's growing in popularity. His second essay on the Black Star Line is a little bit uh, much more critical. He, he starts to actually expose the reporting within the major organ of the UNIA, which is called the Negro World, and basically accusing them of, of fairly shady business dealings in the running of, of the Black Star Line, this passenger and freight, freight company. So it is kind of an, an investigative expose of, of what the Black Star Line has been up to. The third essay on Marcus Garvey is called A Lunatic or a Traitor. So this is written four years after the original essay on Marcus Garvey. And by this point, Du Bois is having nothing of Marcus Garvey. It's clear from the title, quote, Marcus Garvey is without a doubt the most dangerous enemy of the Negro race in America and in the world. He is either a lunatic or a traitor. He is sending all over the country tons of letters and pamphlets appealing to congressmen, businessmen, philanthropists, and educators to join him on a platform whose half-concealed planks may be interpreted as follows. That no person of Negro descent can ever hope of becoming an American citizen. That forced separation of the races and the banishment of Negroes to Africa is the only solution to the Negro problem. That race war is sure to follow any attempt to realize the program of the NAACP. And so this is Du Bois coming out fairly strongly against kind of this... African nationalism. And it's, it's interesting because Du Bois believes so strongly in kind of this Afrocentric ideal and the importance of Africa to world history and the relationship between the diaspora and Africa at, at kind of almost at a spiritual level and through historical experience. There's a lot of commonalities. And he does think there should be solidarity for um, black independence. But to the degree that Marcus Garvey is a nationalist. It seems Du Bois fears that mostly because what it seems to suggest is that black people could only have a historical future in Africa and not in America, that there's no foundation, there's no place for black people in America anymore. And that's where he really wants to, he breaks away from Marcus Garvey's more radical statements and, and views. And then the, the specific context of this essay is the trials. And it's easy to, to say, well, it was the American government prosecuting a black leader. It must be corrupt. And I think Du Bois here is trying to say, well, yeah, that happens. But in the case of Marcus Garvey, we're actually dealing with an actually corrupt person, a liar, someone who probably should go to jail for, for his crime. So this, we see kind of an evolution of Du Bois's views on Marcus Garvey from one of, these are good ideas and there's kind of fascinating things here. And maybe 
if he matures and he creates some, some more solid movement, there can be something here that we can think about pursuing in the future to disguise, you know, either crazy or he's just a corrupt traitor to, to black people. Okay, so the next essay, The Criteria of Negro Art, written in 1926, is... He, in some ways, it's his response to the Harlem Renaissance. I know he's, he's written other things than what we have in this um, essay collection. But this is basically his effort to try to get a handle on the kind of the proliferation of black art in the 1920s and what its relationship of this art should be to politics. And he seems to come down with this idea that art almost has to have this function of propaganda and that kind of art for art's sake isn't really good enough and doesn't really quite get us anywhere. Um, but overall, he does believe that very strongly that black people have a contribution to overall the creation of beauty and art. to the sense that art is beauty, that's well and good. But he thinks there should be another criteria to that and that is its contribution to um, liberation. Quote, we black folk may help for we have within us a new race stirrings stirrings of a different and new appreciation of joy and of a new desire to create and a new will to be and from from this moment of group life we have awakened from some sleep that was once dimly mourns the past and dreams of splendid future and there has come the conviction conviction that the youth that is here today the negro youth is a different type of youth because in some ways it bears the mighty prophecy on its breast and a new realization of itself and new determination for all mankind what has this beauty to do with the world? What has beauty to do with truth and goodness, with the facts of the world and the right actions of men? Nothing, the artist rushed to answer. They may be right, but I am but a humble dis disciple of art and cannot presume to say. I am one who tells the truth and exposes evils and seeks with beauty and for beauty to set the world right. But today, somewhere eternal and perfect beauty sits above truth and right, I can conceive. But here and now, in this world in which I work, they are for me inseparable and inseparable and inseparable and inseparable. Okay, so that's what it comes down to for him. So in an ideal world, yeah, there is art for art's sake, art for pure beauty, and that's something that's admirable and something that can be strived for. But in our world, in you know, in the midst of Jim Crow and white supremacy and empire, art must feed back into the world in some ways and and serve these goals and so what he's essentially saying here is that art should be be propaganda now he gives a specific example he, he gives an, the uh, the play two plays he talks about white cargo is one and congo's the other so white cargo is about white slavery essentially the prostitute right the fallen woman Oh, wait, so sorry, in quote, in white cargo, there's a fallen woman. She is black. In Congo, the fallen woman is white. So I inverted those. But anyways, in white cargo, the black woman goes down further and further. And in Congo, the white woman begins with degradation. But in the end is one of the angels of the Lord. You know, the current magazine story, a young white woman goes down to Central America and the most beautiful colored woman there falls in love with him. A young white man goes down to Central America and the most beautiful colored woman there falls in love with him. She crawls across the whole isthmus to get to him. The white man says nobly, no, but goes back to his white sweetheart in New York. In such cases, it's not the positive propaganda of people who believe white blood divine, infallible and holy to which I object. It is the denial of a similar right of propaganda to those who believe black, black blood 
human, lovable, and inspired with new ideals for the world. White artists themselves suffer from this narrowing of their field. They cry for freedom in dealing with Negroes because they have so little freedom in dealing with whites. End quote. So there he's sort of saying that it's already propaganda for whites. We just don't really acknowledge it, right? And I, I think he's, he's suggesting there's an ideology in white art that already exists. And when black people do the same thing in a, and create art that's propaganda, they get criticized of being polemical. So I, I think this is actually pretty contemporary still. There's a lot to, we can still learn from that. The next essay is, is in the crisis. Um, it's called So the Girl Marries. It's written in 1928. This, this essay, So the Girl Marries, is partially personal because Du Bois has a daughter. And she must again get in that age of, of meritable age by this point. But also it's, it's about the politics of, of marriage. And I mean, here's what he says. He says, the problem of marriage among our present American Negroes is a difficult one. On the one hand, go conflicting philosophies. Should we breed black or should we black folk breed children or commit rape, biological suicide? On the other, should we seek larger sex freedom or closer conventional roles? Should we guide and mate our children like the French? or leave the whole matter of sex intermingling to the chance of the street, like Americans? These are puzzling questions, and all the more so because we do not honestly face them. I mean, this is a pretty bold statement. You know, the sexual revolution is not to the 1960s, and he's asking questions that would be asked in the 1960s about like the proper role of birth control in relationships, the anxieties. Of course, white people in the early 20th century were talking about race suicide as well. Some of the progressives were talking about this, and they feared, some feared birth control because of things like the El Peril, right? That the immigrants and non-whites are going to come in and take over the country if white people don't have start having fewer kids. Du Bois is talking about this um, from a different point of view. I didn't really know that this was much of a concern in the 1920s. Maybe among urban blacks, especially those products of the Great Migration, maybe choosing to delay marriage or, or not marriage. Um, and maybe he's responding here partially to kind of the, the urban culture of the 1920s and its views on, on marriage, although I'm not quite sure. But, you know, more broadly, you know, do we do we, we kind of go back to traditional conventional gender roles and families or do we kind of embrace sexual freedom? That's a very modern question. And it, it's kind of it's interesting that Du Bois gets there in 1928. And then as he goes on, partially it's about a reflection. It's, it's a reflection of his own daughter growing up and the experiences she has in life and, and how he witnessed and experienced this change. So it's, it's kind of very personal in, in this way. Now, his ultimate conclusion is the girl wills it so the girl marries, that the choice for marriage must be in that generation. It's not something that, that he the older generation really can dictate to the younger generation. And, and it ties to the damnation of women in a way in his belief in, in feminism as a good. And part, you know, feminism to be having any meaning at all must grant reproductive freedoms and the freedom to marry or not to, to women. So he really can't backtrack on those points. But he does say, though, that there's a place for tradition. And he, he has this metaphor of someone trying to climb up a slippery or like a muddy hill and how each step must be built on on a foundation that that's built up or you're going to slip down and and that's kind of some advice he gives but he doesn't really come out boldly and say you know we need to go back to our kind of our 
our moral roots and moral foundations and establish, you know, kind of traditional marriage is, is the way forward. He doesn't get there and he does rely on freedom and subjectivity as the ultimate determiner of the proper path forward for, for women and, and men. Although he doesn't really talk much about men here, but which I think is kind of interesting that he, he has an essay here on marriage, but it's, so the girl marries, it's, it's all about the woman's subjectivity. And then just an essay by a father about his girl growing up. It's, it's nice to read and it's kind of sweet in that way. Um, so I guess I'll just look at one more, more essay and that will, that will leave um, plenty of material for a, for a third episode on, on these essays by Du Bois. Is, is called The Negro College. It was written in 1933 in The Crisis. And I don't know, I, I kind of don't want to say too much about this. It's something Du Bois wrote a lot about in the early 20th century when he was a teacher and when he wrote his essay, The Town of the Tenth. And I talked about all that in the previous episode. And so he's coming back to it in 1933. So maybe we can look at this essay as a report on the state of black colleges in in the midst of the Great Depression, perhaps. Um, it's published in The Crisis, but it's a kind of more of an extended investigative report. And one thing that struck me when I read this is just how powerful the legacy of Booker T. Washington was and how much that view of the black college as primarily practical and vocational, you know, is still bothering Du Bois and still in his view, hampering the potential of the black college. Quote, is this statement on the field of Negro University a denial of aspiration or a change from older ideals? I do not think it, it is, although I admit in my own mind some change of thought and modification of method. The system of learning, which bases itself upon the actual conditions of certain classes and groups of human beings, is tempted to suppress a minor premise of fatal menace. It proposes that the knowledge given and the methods pursued in such an institution of learning shall be for the definite objects of perpetuating present conditions or of leaving their amelioration in the hands of and in the imitation of forces and other folks. This was the great criticism of those who fought for higher education from Negroes 30 years ago, brought against the industrial schools. So he's, he's still bothered by this conflict, which he sees between the vocational schools and higher education for for black people. What's changed, it seems, is the Harlem Renaissance, kind of the development of, of a much more self-confident and assertive black culture in, in America. And, and what he calls being essentially on the threshold of a new age and, and the maturation of the black intellectual. So he doesn't really need to prove the talent of 10th anymore. So he's beyond that. So he doesn't have to resort on that, but he's still a bit tormented by the, the legacy of, of kind of the approach of, of the Washingtonians to, to education. Um, now, another thing he talks about a lot here is, is kind of the classist nature of, of higher education, how higher education tends to break up people into classes between the educated and the uneducated, the wealthy and the poor. You know, between those who are really deemed to be menial laborers and those who might have, you know, be pushed into the professions. And so he thinks that this is kind of running parallel to the color line here. And I think that also shows some evolution here. But in a sense, I, I think if you've been reading Du Bois's essays on education, there's not a whole much that much to add. 
in this this essay um, he's pretty consistent I think in his his belief in the importance of higher education so I think that's going to do it I'm, I'm almost at an hour here talking about just I guess it was nine essays it turned out to be so what are we going to do in the next episode well I'm going to finish up Du Bois's essays. There's actually going to be two more article uh, episodes on Du Bois. The first will be the remainder of this section called essays, and then the rest are articles from the crisis. And these are all really short. Most are like less than one page. So there's about like fifty or sixty of them. So I'll do that in in one standalone episode. I don't think I'll talk about each of them, but I'll try to point out maybe some themes that weren't talked about in some of his other essays. But so what we have here are in the next episode are going to be other essays written from the mid 30s until until his death, essentially. And he lived into the 60s. So we got another about 30 years of, of essays to talk about. But there's not that many. Um, but there's a couple important ones here, two in particular. One is the propaganda of history, which is his a selection, a chapter essentially from Black Reconstruction in America. And then the revelation of St. Organet the Damned. And both of these are important contributions of Du Bois to, to American literature. So that's what we'll look at next time. So um, thank you so much for listening to this episode and my thoughts on some of Du Bois' essays. I know I probably missed most of the important points, and I'm probably wrong about a lot of this. So if you have your own criticisms and of, of, of these works, your own point of view on them, are there important things I've missed, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, and I would love to hear from you and hear what your experience with reading Du Bois has been. Um, so thank you again for listening and I'll be back with another some more essays by, by Du Bois next time. The moonlight. I'm walking through that moonlight. Lay this body down.